0: Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. Today we're going to be talking about business and human rights. A hot topic with multinational corporations looking a lot more like states and doing state-like things across the world. Can we constrain them and make them comply with human rights principles? Will they do it willingly? Or is it all just a sticking plaster on a much bigger problem that is impossible to solve in a globalised world? I've got two excellent guests to discuss it. Krishnenju Mukherjee is a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers specialising in immigration law and business and human rights, and Ray Lindsay is a partner at Clifford Chance specialising in international law, economic sanctions, and business and human rights, representing governments, corporations, and financial institutions. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB Law undergraduate course taught in London. For 2020 they're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway if you want to support the podcast then please go to patreon.com forward slash BetterHuman, and if 200 people give just three dollars a month and that will support the podcast and and ensure that we can carry on doing interesting human rights interviews on, on an ongoing basis okay so um Let's talk about business and human rights. Um, and wh- wh- I thought it'd be useful for you both to start just by talking about what your involvement in this area is and how you got interested in the topic. So, should we start with you, Ray?
1: I'm an international lawyer by background. Um, I first got interested in this area when I was practicing in our New York office um, and found a client being sued for violations of international human rights law, including accusations of involvement in genocide, war crimes, slavery, and the like. Um, This sparked my interest in understanding just how business could be involved in alleged human rights violations, what the legal frameworks were. Um, And since that time, I've been working with businesses um, in those areas and in relation to um, respect for human rights, responsible business generally.
2: And Krishnendu? Well, I was a full-time immigration barrister until 2007. And in 2007, I moved to India and started practicing in public um, international law, public interest litigation and became increasingly involved with litigation against corporations. And so the whole idea of corporate accountability and what you can do to make corporates uh, accountable um, began to interest me. So uh, first of all, through litigation, and then secondly, through um, United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which are going into trying to make companies more aware of their um, human rights violations and environmental violations in their supply chain.
0: Traditionally, people probably see human rights as binding states, and they've been about states. You know, what what go back to the Nuremberg trials. You're looking at state accountability for waging unjust wars, or genocide, or you know, ethnic cleansing, and those and and breaches of basic human rights. Why do you think there's been this movement towards recognizing the importance of corporations um, regarding and, and maintaining human rights?
1: I think for many years, there were efforts to hold... Corporations to account for involvement in human rights violations, partly driven by the fact that it was very difficult to hold um, primary actors responsible. So obvious, often businesses are caught up in violations by states or state entities uh, or armed groups, um, but there are difficulties in obtaining access to justice in those situations against those primarily responsible. There are efforts to hold corporations to account. Um, I think uh, in relation to the area generally, part of the difficulty has been multinational International corporations operating um, across borders and so uh, a lack of international regulation on a sort of cohe- cohesive basis and so people felt that um, some corporat- corporate behaviour was falling through the gaps uh, because of this uh, inability to regulate internationally uh, and the way in which corporate groups or- operated so there were efforts to seek to hold companies to account by holding them uh, to the same standards as states, but then ultimately a recognition that the international legal order uh, doesn't apply in the same way as to, to private sector businesses as it does to states, and a movement towards the UN guiding principles, which um, which set out a framework which recognises the international legal obligations on states, but differentiates with respect to companies, which are by and large subject to domestic domestic legal regimes, including in the area of human rights, but who have a socially accepted responsibility to respect human rights. So recognizing the distinction between states and corporations and trying to make sense of what the the corporate role is in terms of both preventing and protecting human rights, but also holding them accountable in appropriate cases where they've been involved in adverse human rights impacts.
0: It seems like corporations, I, I see, see the point of trying to distinguish between states and corporations, but isn't one of the issues that corporations are starting to look a lot like states, especially large multinational corporations?
2: Yes, I mean, number of corporations have turnovers larger than many states, and I think there's an increasing understanding in the 1990s that the nature of the globalized economy has changed, so that, uh, you know, no longer do you have uh, goods which are produced in one country, you have these long supply chains, um, and it was in, becoming increasingly important that uh, corporations should be held into account for violations that that take place in their in their in their supply chains, where transnational litigation was difficult or expensive to undertake.
0: So, so, when you talk about supply chains, you mean that a product like an iPhone, talking about a complicated product like an iPhone, may be produced in lots of different countries and. With things being moved from one place to another, factories in Indonesia or China or uh, the United States or or whatever, and all this comes to this one product, that supply chain can affect tens of thousands of people. I guess.
2: Um, absolutely. I think one of the the most um, well known examples recently is the two thousand and thirteen Rana Plaza factory collapse. So you have a situation there where a lot of the high street bra- brands in in Europe were Producing their clothes in garment factories in Bangladesh. In 2013, a factory which was held to be, uns- uh, which was supposed to be unsafe, deemed unsafe, collapsed, killing over a thousand people. And, and so people, um, uh, the public made an outcry about the fact that uh, there was a supply chain in which garments were being produced in factories which were unsafe.
0: And what, what can you do? If a country, if a corporation is just talking about supply chains across many different jurisdictions, um, and and also will be moving from one jurisdiction to the other as you know, if, if things get more regulated in a particular place or, or more expensive, they might move. So, what kinds of measures can you put in place, or what what can you do with corporations to help them work on their human rights record across that supply chain? I
1: think it's important to first appreciate what the nature of the corporate responsibility is in those situations. So supply chains can obviously span multiple jurisdictions. They extend across borders through various countries, and they can be very long. I think what has um, come out of the UN guiding principles, which acknowledge a responsibility on companies to address human rights impacts either with which they're involved through causing or contributing to them or to which they can be linked through their supply chains because those are business relationships and ultimately uh, they're sourcing uh, say component parts that ultimately may become part of a product that they're selling is to recognize that they have a responsibility to do due diligence, to understand what the impacts of their operations and their business relations are, how human rights can be adversely affected by those and to think about um, what their responsibility in that context is and often through supply chains it will be um, if there's a direct linkage between the products that the company is manufacturing for example and the ultimately sourced components to try to exert leverage through that supply chain to address the human rights impact Um, because the the ultimate um, the buyer at the end of the chain isn't causing or contributing to that impact but it may be linked to it Through that uh, supply chain. So, to try to exert through that, through understanding its own supply chain, and this can be quite difficult for companies, is even mapping out where their their ultimate components are being sourced from. So, I think part of this due diligence process has been getting companies to themselves understand exactly where their products are coming from and what the situation is on the ground, and then thinking about um, what their linkage may be to an ultimate human rights impact um, and what they. Ought to be doing or can do to try to influence um, what's happening in that supply chain to ensure that those adverse impacts are not occurring.
2: I, I think that's very, I think that's very important. I mean, um, what the UN guiding principles require companies to do in their human rights due diligence is to identify the risks in their supply chains, and that's quite often very difficult because often supply chains are very opaque. So you need to make them more more transparent then to identify and integrate the findings um, in their business business activity and then track the human rights performance in their supply chains and communicate that so it's a, it's not a a single activity it's an ongoing activity which is incrementally meant to improve human rights and, and uh, environmental performance in
0: their in their supply chain but i think we've mentioned the un guiding principles a few times now should i just Set out a bit of of the background too, and we can and we can talk in a bit more detail because they're quite new, aren't they? The the UN guiding principles we're we're only talking I think nine years mm-hmm. um, nine years ago that they came into force. There's there's three pillars, and, and maybe I'll, I'll just set out the three pillars, and then we can talk about them. Um, first of all, the state duty to protect against human rights abuses by third parties through appropriate appropriate policies, regulation, and adjudication. So that's classic on the state um, responsibilities. Second, corporate responsibility to respect human rights, meaning that business enterprises should act with due diligence to avoid infringing the rights of others and to address adverse impacts with which they're involved. And then third, the most important one, probably, um, as in all human rights instruments, the need for greater access by victims for effective remedy, both judicial and non-judicial. And I just mean the most important in the sense of you have to be able to enforce. You have, There has to be some level of, um, of bite to any kind of human rights instruments to make them work but having said that it might it be the case that in the corporate responsibility area a lot of businesses are taking these on voluntarily
1: well the un guiding principles aren't a binding instrument they basically um, operationalize uh, the three-pillar framework that you just referred to and whereas although that's aligned with the international legal status they're not a binding instrument they reflect um, the current state of play on the international legal stage. And they're normative in the sense that they're, they're creating um, behaviours uh, and standards. Um, they guide businesses on how to respect human rights through the elements that you've described, which is the policy commitment, the human rights due diligence, and cooperating and or providing remedy in appropriate situations. In that sense, they've been really useful as a practical tool, tool for businesses to understand what their responsibility is and to try to operationalise that. Because any human rights, due diligence process requires integration within the business Um, a lot of businesses are on a journey with that it's been really important for people to get started Um, and it it can't all just happen overnight it's quite complex to understand your human rights impacts and then think about how you should be addressing them and then to you know take account of them etc and as appropriate set up remedial processes but that's a journey that a lot of businesses have been going have gone on the purpose of the human rights due diligence. I mean, it has two interesting, well, one interest, really interesting feature, which is, unlike normal legal due diligence, it's focused on impacts on on the rights
0: holders. Um, Can we just pause for a second because not not everybody I think listening will know what what normal due diligence is. Um, not if you've not sort of worked in a in a bigger business. But what, what what's normal due diligence and what's human rights due diligence?
1: Most due diligence exercises that are undertaken will be looking at the legal risks to a company um, in either a transaction or investment or whatever. Uh, And so the due diligence process will involve looking at um, whether activities might increase that legal risk, risks to the company. So it might also include, say, financial risks and commercial risks. Human rights due diligence under the UN guiding pr- principles requires the companies to look at the impacts of their operations and business relationships on anyone who may be affected by, the, by, by those activities. So it's very focused on the rights holders and having identified what those impacts might be then to take steps to address the impacts that are being caused or that might be being caused so that's not a risk to the business often when a business is dealing with it they will want to do the human rights due diligence that has that focus alongside its own diligence um, you know as to what the risks are to itself but but the the beauty in terms of um enhancing protection for rights holders and mitigating risks to them is that this focus is on the rights holders Um, And very much, therefore, uh, when it's properly done by companies, I think helps to prevent impacts that might otherwise have arisen because they're consciously focusing on what these impacts might be. And when it's done properly, it should also incorporate engagement with those who may be affected into the process of understanding what those risks are and how to address them. And at the end of the day, how to go about uh, remedying any adverse impacts.
2: I think it's it's also worth adding that whilst the United Nations guiding principles are at the moment not binding, they are being taken on board by a number of international uh, guidelines and declarations. For instance, the uh, OECD guidelines plus policy statements from the G7, G20 and so on. And there is a move, I think, to make them mandatory. Um, For instance, in uh, France and in Holland, we have uh, mandatory due diligence uh, laws and there are laws which are being on the anvil in switzerland and, and, and other countries so i think we are slowly seeing a move from pure voluntary uh compliance to to mandatory compliance
0: and, w- and when you say mandatory is that how is it tending to operate as a mandatory law
2: well um we're not at the stage of uh, criminal sanction um but for instance in the f- as far as i'm aware in the French. While the vigilance, there's a, a a plan that needs to be um, produced by the company in order to uh, mitigate and remedy any human rights violations in its in the supply chain. And if that plan is defective anyway, and uh, or the company doesn't comply with that plan in a way, then a civil fine can be instituted by by, by a court.
0: Right. So so moving into a towards a culture of strongly uh, incentivizing companies. To fulfil human rights due diligence principles or, or, or business and human rights principles, and um, I suppose m- modern slavery is, is is perhaps a good example where it's th- there's getting to be tougher regulations um, on companies. It's very much a human rights issue. There's tens of millions of people in the world who are currently modern slaves. It's a it's a very very big problem. It's not east or west or north or south um, d- d- defined really. It's it's everywhere. And that is something which in the UK there's been quite significant efforts in the past decade to counter it. Do you think that's, is that actually business and human rights in action? Is it something different? Is it working?
1: It's, It's definitely British. A business and Human Rights in Action. Um, it's one of those areas where there's been there's been international consensus at the policy level that there should be eradication of modern slavery. It's incorporated within the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, it's been accepted at the level of the ILO, the International Labour Organization. And so there's been this international agreement that this is an absolute imperative, a priority for policymaking. So the UK certainly took the lead in creating its modern slavery legislation to um, try to tackle this and to incorporate provisions that place an onus on businesses to be transparent about what they're doing in their supply chains uh, in their efforts to help eradicate modern slavery and to ensure that it isn't there in their supply chains. So certainly it's business and human rights in practice. Um, I suppose that the main controversial question would be, you know, just how effective is that provision in our Modern Slavery Act in terms of driving all of the behaviours that the UN guiding principles um, expect. Um, so it doesn't, for example, require the due diligence that should lead up to the reporting stage there are other the other new pieces of legislation coming out for example in australia it's just passed the law which does include mandatory coverage within its reporting requirements so that the trend is definitely towards um, a hardening around these expectations that due diligence uh, human rights focused due diligence is an important part of corporate behavior i think modern slavery part has has really driven that and it's ensured certainly that um, these level these issues are getting board level attention and of course, once you're addressing modern slavery in these ways through due, due, doing due diligence and being transparent and reporting, um, you're well positioned to um, expand that throughout your operations to encompass human rights more generally. So in that sense, it's certainly been a positive shift in in behaviours.
2: I mean, it is it is obviously very important and we have seen a number of examples of modern slavery here in the United Kingdom.
0: Can, can you give some examples of what modern slavery might look like? Um in the United Kingdom at the moment,
2: there, there was certainly one case which um, the workers who are working in um, an agricultural farm were, were not paid the minimum wage because the the times in which they were travelling or the times they were working was um, in, w- was too long for the minimum wage to be to be settled on. There are nail bars, there are cannabis farms. I think they're mostly to do with with trafficking um so people are brought up from outside the united kingdom vietnam and other countries to work in uh, work in those places so those are those are obviously examples of modern slavery where quite often there's, there's situations of detention and so on um i think there's been examples of of modern slavery found in garment factories for instance in in leicester where people are not being paid the minimum wage so certainly in this country um it's modern slavery and trafficking go together Quite often, but also in terms of uh, in terms of uh, the lack of uh, proper employment protection for, for the workers here.
0: So that's a, when you say that they go together, people are brought trafficked into the UK probably illegally and then put to work. And they, they have no way. They, they might be not allowed to leave or they have no, not given any money. They've got no passport. So effectively, they can't uh, they can't escape. They mm. got nowhere to go. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And in terms of the Modern Slavery Act, so the Modern Slavery Act was from 2015. It it requires organisations over a certain annual turnover to prepare a slavery and human trafficking statement for each final year and to report on steps or absence of steps taken to ensure that slavery or human trafficking offences does not take place in their business or their supply chains. So preparing a report is not quite the same as due diligence,
1: That's right. Um, So the the only requirement in the Act is to prepare a statement of the steps taken in in a given financial year to ensure there's no modern slavery in a business or its supply chains. Um, A company can can comply by publishing a statement that says it has taken no steps. Um, So one of the main criticisms of the Act has been that it it doesn't place more onus requirements on businesses. Um, There is a there's guidance within the act as to the types of um, subject matter that might be included in a statement which would include you know the organized uh, mapping of the organization's supply chains um, and the risk assessment and due diligence steps that it's taken but that doesn't have to be covered Um, and so the question although reporting on steps if you have taken them in principle should drive uh, due diligence because you have to be doing something to be able to report on it that's not It's not part and parcel of the requirement in the Act. So the issue has been, um, you know, is that reporting requirement driving the right kind of changes in behaviour? Or should the Act go further by making some of the statements coverage mandatory so that you have to report on your due diligence processes, which in principle then should again R- encourage at least businesses to do more in terms of due diligence or should it go further and become a mandatory due diligence requirement in and of itself
0: currently the well, first of all there's a, there's a threshold size of a company that has to be 36 million pound turnover or more so it only captures a small proportion of of companies and in, in, i would have thought in, operating in the, in the united kingdom and i guess that's a, that's an issue when you're talking about smaller businesses they have no requirement um but also there's been a review and could could you want to talk about what what the review found it was a review last year by the by peter carter
2: well i think one of one of the problems that um has been prevalent in uh, section 54 is the non-compliance and by what i mean by non-compliance in the sense that uh, although it's voluntary um many of the companies that reach the threshold Um, have not published um, the Section 54 statements or haven't published Section 54 statements in the form that um, is in the guidelines which the Home Office have have produced. And in order to try and uh, promote the voluntary compliance, if you like, by the companies, the review has said that reporting should should be mandatory and that companies should report on the steps they're taking to to alleviate uh, modern slavery in their supply chains, and I think that's that's an important step forward um, if that's ultimately taken on board, because uh, it, it means that uh, those who don't publish the statements will will um, be affected by their brand image.
0: And, and do you have any sense of whether there's an appetite to take on these recommendations? Because it's still it's already quite quite a bit ago that these recommendations were made. Although I guess we've had a few governments. Um, and in elections since may 2019 um to to worry about
1: um i i I'm not, I'm not quite sure where it is in the legislative process there have been amendments to the statute on the table for two or three years now um i do know that many large businesses who are already um Conducting due diligence and reporting in detail on their modern slavery statements are very supportive of the changes. And in fact, um, a lot of business was behind the original provision in the modern slavery legislation. So companies who are taking their human rights responsibilities seriously and who have these due diligence processes in place and are willing to be transparent about the position are keen for there to be a level playing field. Uh, And this is, I think, what the legislation would encourage by, um, for example providing that there are certain areas that have to be included within the report. So I think there is um, support amongst many companies who are already quite advanced in their development of practice in this area for that to be to be the case.
0: R- Ray, I'm, I'm interested to hear about some your experience of going into businesses or, or advising businesses, um, maybe businesses that haven't done this kind of thing before or not used to this kind of thing. In, in your experience do businesses take this unwillingly? Do they have to be drag kicking and screaming? Are they coming to you saying we want to get more involved in human rights because it's important for our public image or our board thinks it's important? How does it? How does it actually operate in practice?
1: There are some sectors in which that, that have been. Um, conducting effectively human rights due diligence for many years and who have had to take account of these issues quite seriously so some multinationals are in sectors where they've been exposed to human rights risk for quite a long time um, for the, so the extractive sectors, for example, or manufacturing and re- retail, which have the long supply chains we've been talking about. And they've already, you know, they've got a lot of staff who are involved in it um, and have people on the ground who are very engaged with communities and workers and so on in, do, in doing and addressing these issues.
0: So, so we're talking there sort of oil and gas and coal, those sorts of companies and garments, you know, technology companies with where where they're working in lots of di- they've got factories in lots of different countries or supply chains across different countries.
1: Yes, I, and I I think um, th- there may well h- have been. I think it's becoming increasingly understood that, first of all, the UN guiding principles, even though not a legally binding instrument themselves, reflect an expectation, an international standard, which is increasingly the authoritative standard and businesses are aspiring to um, align with it. I think um, any reticence is often around um, you know, just what does this involve, um, companies not really understanding sometimes what human rights issues are or what this will all entail, um, trying to align it with their internal risk management processes. Uh, but certainly um, the companies that, that I've been working with um, are, are embracing it and really really um, trying to get to grips with what their impacts and risks are and how to incorporate human rights due diligence properly within their organization within their organizations um, it, it can be challenging but i think it's important to recognize that it's a journey um, and to start first of all with with the policy commitment important to have tone from the top um, but often uh, staff within these organizations and the employees very excited to be part of something which is aimed at um, minimizing human rights impacts and addressing risks when they arise and therefore improving the situation on the ground for individuals that may be affected either directly or indirectly by business operations.
2: Yes and I advise a number of NGOs who work with stakeholders who are the subject of uh, human rights violations and their challenge is to really try and get corporations who are involved in the supply chain um buyers of of uh, goods to use their economic leverage to try and improve that to put pressure on um their suppliers to improve um the human rights conditions in in the places where they work and also liaise with governments if possible to try and um um, bring better enforcement of uh, domestic legislation in those countries
0: and is that sounds quite difficult <laughs> if you're working if it, if it's across lots of different countries if, if perhaps you're working with a smaller NGO
2: I think I think obviously none of these things are easy um, and no one can say that it's this, the problems will be solved, solved in the short term but if one looks at a sort of medium to long-term view um, I think there are Many things which 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 uh, corporations can do in order to uh, make um, human rights viol- mitigate human rights violations through their business activity. And one of the things I think which is important is uh, for instance, transparency in their supply chain um, and identifying where goods are obtained from. And that's that's something that a lot of NGOs want uh, corporations to to try and do. So, for instance, in terms of Assam tea, for instance and um, there has been a move by a number of corporations to to publicly reveal where they buy their team from and that I think allows a much more transparent supply chain where where human rights violations can be mitigated
0: so that's that's a case of uh, just as you see the ingredients in in a bit of food you know in a pa- you also see all the different places that 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 product has has come from if it's come from more than one place and that allows you to then Go and look at how people are being treated, um, and try and address those issues.
2: It, it allows, yes, it allows ultimately consumers to be able to verify whether um, whether the good is produced in in conditions which in which human rights violations are
0: are inherent just just thinking of 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 examples in the last couple of decades of movements to try and deal with this from a consumer point of view thinking of fair trade um the, the the sweatshop campaigns i guess in the in the 90s do you think those are those making a difference because you see a lot more fair trade labels on food in the supermarket now but is that make, making a difference in the wider world
2: i think i think if it's done properly then i think it's a step forward um I think the problem is is that quite often the certifications which are given um may not be um wholly um correct so the question is who what are you certifying and who are you asking in order to get this get this certified so uh, there is a um degree of criticism about what's called third party auditing where auditing companies come and ask suppliers Of let's say western corporations on whether they are they obtaining their goods from places where there are no human rights violations and uh, quite often that's been described as a tick box exercise so they simply get the answers from the supplying company who have their vested interest in in giving those answers um so
0: they're made to fill out fill out a form yes fill out a form are you treating your work as well is, yes. there, is there child labour? <laughs> yes, is there? Right. Is, uh, but they're no, not going in and inspecting factories.
2: And one of the problems is is that the, the supply chain isn't transparent. So what is required here is is a mechanism by which the entire supply chain can be can be properly and and regularly um, verified for, for in relation to in relation to the human rights violations to make sure that the human rights violations are are regularly being uh, addressed.
0: The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just three dollars a month, that's just over two pounds, via our Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects.
1: I, I think the, that kind of the labeling and the consumer impact um, is one area in which you know there has been a lot of pressure exerted and it has been quite effective in both raising public awareness um, but also this um, th- the call for transparency and accountability the transparency that has come through things like you know labeling for example and consumers and some shareholder activism um, is also now accompanied by the formal reporting in regulatory areas. And I think the other area which is affecting practical change is the um sustainable investment uh, community. So obviously, access to finance and access to capital now is partly driven by financial institutions requiring good human rights performance by companies in which they will invest. So this so from both ends of the spectrum, really, there is increasing pressure on, corporates to behave responsibly in the human rights space and then obviously with the trajectory of movement in the regulatory area as well all the indications are that there will increase to be these pressures uh, multiple pronged pressures on companies to actually be taking their human rights due due diligence and their responsibilities very seriously
0: and and that finance piece of the puzzle could be quite a big piece of the puzzle I, i guess because some of the institutional investors i guess like big American universities can exert quite a bit of pressure with their multi-billion-dollar investment funds to say, "Well, we're not, we not. don't want um, modern, a risk of modern slavery in the in the supply chains, or a risk that, um, that that there is some sort of other human rights abuses in going on that we don't know about." But who's doing the? Who's certifying that? Again, it comes back to this: who is actually deciding or who is assessing where they should invest and are there middle are there third parties or ngos playing that role who's who's policing it
1: I think this is one of the great challenges. And at, at the moment, I think it's one of the challenges for the investment community is how to find reliable benchmarking or research that um, is sufficiently granular and, and gains a really objective, true insight into company behaviors to ensure that um, investors who believe that they are investing sustainably or into human rights conforming businesses are actually doing so so that's one of the real challenges i think the investment community is is facing is trying to get the right kind of information uh, and all, also to make sure that the information is comparable in order to assess just the track record of the actual track record of businesses in the human rights area and other areas sustainability like environment climate change and so on
2: i think i think is i think that that also would be a very big step forward i think there's moves now to, to have corporate accountability benchmarks which grade uh, corporations uh next to very sort of specified criteria and um i think if that's done properly that's a step forward because ultimately um corporations are are concerned about their reputation about reputational damage risks and brand image and uh if they can um, enhance their reputation by being high up the Uh, corporate benchmark uh, leagues and that's that's all good for them
0: and and what do you think can be done better and more how can this be how can that pressure be increased
1: I think the challenge is to And this is one of the challenges of developing effective regulation. I think this is one of the real challenges is getting empirical evidence of what works and what doesn't uh, and of actually gauging which companies are doing things best and most effectively. So I think that kind of empirical evidence is very hard to find and will be one of the challenges in building up these benchmarks in a reliable way. It's one of the challenges that the auditing sector has faced in this area, which is it, it's um, you don't want a purely compliance focused approach that can tick some boxes. Um, often in, in these kinds of situations, effective due diligence involves really getting down onto the ground and understanding what's happening and what the issues are. Um, and it's quite easy often to, to paper over things that are going on. So I think the main challenge for the, the business community and for governments and for everyone who's involved and interested in this sector is to understand what difference is any of this making on the ground to people. Um, and that's where there really isn't hard and fast granular information of how much is actually changing for those people, how much easier they're finding it to get a remedy if they are actually impacted and, and harmed. Um, and if it takes government regulation, what kinds of regulation are going to be effective to actually change behaviours in a meaningful way?
2: I, I think there has to be a recognition that we are moving from soft law to hard law and that the mandatory due to rights due diligence um, is coming and that, you know, companies should be... Um, more aware that, um, you know, rather than saying I don't want to do human rights due diligence because it's a risk of being sued or a risk of uh, not complying with reporting conditions or whatever, that actually provides an opportunity to provide a sustainable business activity um, for the long term in which ultimately you can make profit, maybe even more profit than you have been in the past, but also, also improve. Um, the lives of your workers and the communities in which you work um, through your through your actual business activity so we are hoping that companies will um, be courageous and see this as a win-win situation rather than some a situation to be frightened of
0: and if they don't (laughs) as as as, you know that and, and i think it probably from what you're saying is is a mixed bag that some companies will be more enlightened than others which you'd expect you talk about the move to hard law there has been, there has been quite a lot of litigation over the in recent years over for example environmental standards which i which is very much a kind of human rights area so pollution um you know um also thinking about the group actions in nigeria you know, run by lee day those those kinds of thing where there's been thousands of people um uh, affected by by oil dumps and, and that sort of thing or toxic waste and also in the in europe there's been quite strong regulation of, of air standards and pollution do you think there's going to be more hard litigation going forward um, or is, is there an appetite for that
2: i think one of the problems having having worked in india for over a decade now is is where you have uh legal systems which are problematic in terms of delays and corruptions and so on actually bringing these challenges in the countries itself can be very time-consuming and then bringing transnational cases obviously transnational linkages are only found in a very small number of cases and they're hugely expensive um, to bring and there really really needs to be a way of um, improving human rights and environmental standards in those countries without resorting to uh, lengthy or expensive uh, litigation. And that's where I place my hope in in the move now to make companies more accountable um, for their business activity, that companies will recognize that actually, in with a lot of exis- existential problems that exist now in terms of climate change and environmental degradation and, and human rights really on an all-time low uh, globally, um, that, we, that the business-as-usual scenario simply can't be sustained, that we do need to have Um, companies as good corporate actors um, leading the way in this
0: one thing thought that keeps coming to my mind is that although this feels quite new in the in the modern world in a way it's a kind of replay of the industrial revolution um the the way that factories were built with no labor standards at all and and over decades that was seen to be wrong on us on us on a wider social level and eventually factories were regulated the minimum wage was brought in and, and labor unions and that sort of thing so domestically I, I guess i'm just thinking about the uk we fought these battles before and they, to an extent the companies were tamed you know with lots of with many exceptions it's just so much more difficult in a multinational corporate world to tame companies that are just going from country to country, leaving when things get more too expensive or too difficult, do you think this is sort of putting a plaster on on a cut that's just going to keep getting bigger
1: um I think it, part of the difficulty is obviously the corporate reaction can only be part of the the solution there's a failure of you know of, of regulation and of good governance within certain parts countries for example that just lead to the, the opportunity for these things to happen um, it doesn't mean that companies have always behaved ideally but if there was if there was stronger governance within those company uh, some of the, some countries more effective internal systems and oversight um better access to remedy um no corruption um it would be easier for people who are affected to ensure that that those instances can't occur in their jurisdiction. So there is that, you know, role of the state overall. I think when when you look at the Industrial Revolution scenario, there's, you know, there are imperfections in our system now. And if you look at things like, you know, at Me Too... Um, an example of, you know, human rights abuses in Western corporate behavior, for example. Um, and so some of our structures and institutionalization, I think, has lost sight of the individual and the communities, even in our own country. So I think that it's time for a shake up in, in how these issues are looked at. And I think that um, the, you know, the current challenges of climate change and you know, the guiding principles and so on around lo- how you look at human rights and business impact on that. And multinationals um, seeking to embrace that is certainly part of, of the solution. And I think um, a more progressive way of, of looking at the issues and trying to address them. But I don't I don't think that we can be c- complacent and think that we, you know, we didn't just have a sticking plaster on some of our issues, because I think some of those solutions are now shown to be imperfect. And so we need, need to be looking on and, and as I say, looking at uh, the crux of the issue the impacts and how we can make it make effective ways for people who are impacted to get the appropriate remedies from the appropriate players
2: i think i think in a globalized world there's no one solution i think now um people need to look at a whole cocktail of possible ways of remedying human rights violations so that may well be litigation either domestically or transnationally it may be putting pressure on companies to do human rights due diligence and, and remedy it may be the media, it may be social media. I mean, one of the greatest results that I've had um, was when there was a rap song that that went viral and caused a company to to to, to settle damages for a pollution case in uh, in southern India. So sorry, can
0: can we just <laughs> dig into that a little bit? So so of course. I'm guessing it wasn't your rap song. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was a very it was a very uh,
2: a, a young woman, Sophia Ashraf, did a rap song about pollution from a uh, Unilever subsidiary in the Indian hill station of Corder Canal, um, a, mercury, a mercury poisoning case, which had been sort of stayed in the Indian courts for uh, over a decade. And uh, she made her rap song, which cost um, 50 pounds, took a day to, to record, uh, uploaded it onto YouTube. It went viral. And um, ultimately, um, Unilever settled, settled.
0: And was she had already a rap artist? she was known. she was known she was known, known in and, the, and the how do well. you know the, the background of how she was how she ended up doing that?
2: I think cause there, there there's a group of uh, of activists in southern India in Chennai, and she was in that sort of collective of collective of a uh, people as an activist who who did also rap songs and so she was approached to do it free of charge and and that's what she wanted if people want to see it, it's called Koda Canal won't.
0: Code of canal words. Yeah. Okay, well, definitely. Maybe I'll try and put a clip in (laughs) uh, at the end. Um, I just want to ask you finally about um, tech corporations. We haven't really um, spoken very much about tech corporations, but it does seem that, just take an example, Facebook. Facebook, with however many billion users, is... In some ways, looking a lot like a state, or at least the public square of a state, and has a lot of influence over political freedom of expression, over um, the the rights of people to um, not be abused, um, and and those sorts of different kinds of human rights to say a um, an energy company or a or a retail company. Is there any prospect of those companies? thinking more through a human rights frame?
1: I, I can't speak to any individual company, but there are certainly initiatives that indicate that collectively and individually they are. Um, there are obviously huge challenges with respect to your know, data and its uses and um, requests by governments for information and uh, things like surveillance huge challenges that, you know, would perplex any individual government or the international community. Um, And so, you know, corporations grappling with it, um, and, and certainly a lot of considerations to be taken into account, including the human rights ones. I think in all of these areas, there's often room for disagreement as to you know what is is the right response the the good thing about the guiding principles it's a relatively simple framework Um, is it allows a process of analysis of situations of impacts and of responses and allows businesses to go through a process of exercising judgments within that framework it's always going to be possible to call into account whether the judgment has been right or or wrong Um, and in, in some of these areas, um, there is a question about you know, just how equipped are companies to exercise ju- some of those judgments when the human rights impacts are so great. And they'd probably be the first to say that, that they need a lot of support in, in doing so. So um, I think that's, you know, that's one of the huge dilemmas, but I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in the tech space and I, I wouldn't like to comment on any one individual corporation but um, obviously, one would hope that with a commitment to respect human rights, they are looking at the issues that arise within that lens and working through the processes of exercising their judgments and taking their decisions. And I think for companies, it's about having a clear framework around, you know, what your approach to those issues are be, going to be and how the senior executives are taking the decisions and making sure that it, it does fall within that overarching respect for human rights as set out in that framework.
2: I mean I think I think there there's been increasing uh cynicism about large data um because of recent cases such as Cambridge Analytica and so on now the question is if how is a, are those brands going to ensure that they remain uh uh clean in the eyes of in the eyes of the public and I think it does require those companies to put in place safeguards by which by which um people can ensure um so again it's all it's it's in in a way it's all back to transparency um in the same way that the companies are meant to increasingly uh, show transparency in the supply chain in the same way big data are supposed to show transparency in the way that they operate uh, to ensure that they're not Selling or giving away data which would um, harm the human rights of uh, of the public um, Who are their clients
0: and, and that's the big focus of the general data protection regulation is that transparency piece And that's why we all have those annoying pop-ups when we go on websites now telling you all the different uh, All the different people that they're selling our data to or giving our consent to all the different people and I have and never thought of it Like the as a digital supply chain, but that's precisely what it what it is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think that's all we've got time for but thanks so much for coming on the podcast it's been really interesting um and is is there any resources or organizations which you'd recommend people go to next to find out more about business and human rights
1: I think the one, there was one really useful portal, which is the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre, which amalgamates lots of information and resources in multiple areas, has a weekly update, um, and also has an accountability section, which talks about case law in this area. Um, I think it's, it's a good initial resource for people who are interested in finding out more.
2: I mean, I think that what, what people should do is um, look at the companies that they buy products from and go to their website and see whether they have published a section 54 modern slavery act statement and if they haven't ask
0: questions of the company as to why they haven't or stop buying their products or stop buying their products until they do thanks very much um ray krishnendu it's been a pleasure thank you thanks very much to my guests the better human podcast is supported by goldsmiths law and their pioneering new llb undergraduate course taught in london for 2020 they're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway if you want to support the podcast, then please go to patreon.com forward slash better And if you can just give $3 a month, that would help support the podcast and make it sustainable. I'm going to finish um, with a bit of an excerpt from um, Cody Canal Won't, um, which is on YouTube. It has over 4 million views. And as we've already heard in the podcast, it made a huge difference to ensuring that justice was achieved.
1: Won't, Won't Kodekana won't step down till you make amends now. This is the story of Kodai's frustration. Known to us as the princess of his stations. Unilever came and left devastation as they exposed the land to contamination.
0: You get the idea. You can find it on YouTube. Kodekanae won't. See you next time.